there today, so uh, visit the folks at the welcome table and pick one up if that's something that you would like to use in your home. I'm going to ask Teresa now to come and read the scripture. The scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. And when you say you have no husband, the fact is you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors, ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but... You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, woman, Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, will he explain everything to us? Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he.
Well, last weekend, our family escaped the city, and we drove to Montreal for an extended family day weekend. And of course, as every road trip is, it was not without adventure. The adventure began at approximately Mississauga Road um, when the traffic was backed up, and it was Saturday morning. And I'm thinking, why is the traffic this bad on a Saturday morning? On a weekday, I would expect it. So I turned on 680 News, and I was listening for the traffic report and, and found out that the reason there was a delay is that uh, just up ahead, a car was flipped over on its side, riddled with bullet holes. There had been a shooting on the 401. I'm like, what the heck is going on? What country do we live in? Anyways, I tell the story because no one was actually hurt, miraculously, in this event. But what required was they actually shut the entire 401 eastbound down, and we had to get off and do this detour. So already, I'm just like, man, we, we're driving to Montreal. We've already lost a half hour of time. And then as we get close to Montreal, I, I missed an exit, and, and then I, I had to take this other road, and I'm following it, and, and all of a sudden, I, I start seeing signs. And I, I recognize a couple of French words on the signs, and I'm like, oh, that's not good. And so I tuned into another radio station, and I said uh, to the kids, I said, Owen, listen to the radio. What is it saying? And then he listens for a minute, and he says, it says the highway is closed. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like two in one trip? And sure enough, the Highway 20 was closed entirely, and I had to get off. And as, on the moment, as I was getting off and, the, and just crawling in the traffic, my GPS died, completely died. And I know what you're thinking, who still uses a GPS? I do, okay? And you're just going to have to accept that. And so eventually we made it, um, mostly used her phone, which I know is what, how most of you get around, and uh, we made it, but only after another classic road trip dad meltdown. Um, but we did find our way. And all of that to say that roadblocks suck. Roadblocks get in the way of where we're trying to go, and they are very frustrating for us. This year for Lent, we are following Jesus through John's gospel, listening in on some of the conversations that he engages in on his way to the cross. Last week, George got our series underway by taking a look at the mental roadblock that can prevent us from knowing God, a reminder that having faith isn't always easy. As we learn from his conversation with the Pharisee, Nicodemus, Jesus invites us to believe in him, which goes beyond believing facts to trusting that he is who he says he is. And now in this morning's reading, we find Jesus in dialogue with a very different kind of person than Nicodemus, but his invitation to believe is extended to her just the same. John chapter 4 features two characters, Jesus and a woman whose name has been lost to history. So I want to walk through the passage that Teresa read for us this morning. It begins this way, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Familiar stories can lull us into missing some of the more profound truths that are found in the details, like the fact that the person that we're dealing with here, Jesus, the Son of God, was very much like us in his humanity. He was tired, he was hungry, and he was thirsty. The beginning of John's gospel reminds us of why this is the case. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's the message translation. God moved into our neighborhood to demonstrate that he is very much like us and is with us, as we've been singing this morning already. 
Now, these stories in John's gospel, they're not fables. They're not fairy tales. Neither are they stories of great military victories. They're not epic love poems, but they're stories about Jesus' journey to the cross. Like the story about the time he got tired and sat down beside a well while his friends went off to get some lunch. Today's reading begins with the Son of God asking a nameless Samaritan woman to meet his needs in that moment, to offer something of herself to him, in this case, a cup of water. Yes, eventually he will offer her living water, a spring of water welling up into eternal life. But at the start, it's the woman who is asked to give him something. But as far as she is concerned, there are just too many things that stand in the way. So what were the barriers that almost prevented this woman from engaging Jesus? And what might they tell us about the roadblocks that we assume prevent us from moving on in our own journey of faith? Verse 9 of John chapter 4 says that the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And so the first barrier that she saw was her identity, both as a Samaritan and as a woman. John explains why this was an issue. He says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In case any of his readers weren't sure why this would be a problem, in case us, all of these years later, were wondering, well, what's the big deal? No, Jews and Samaritans, they don't interact. They don't talk. And they certainly don't ask one another for a drink of water. When we were away on the weekend, we were sitting at a restaurant, and I can't remember how the conversation struck up, but Jude was sitting beside me, and at one point he said, when I grow up, I want to be a comedian which wasn't really a surprise, but his mother misheard what he said, and she responded, what are you talking about? You already are a Canadian. And I was like, well, geez, like, talk about lowering the bar, like, right down. Like, when I grow, when I grow up, my goal is to be a Canadian. You already are. Exactly. I have no goals for my life. That's it. That's good. But right here in John chapter 4, we have a woman who is known primarily for her nationality, right? She's a Samaritan. She grew up to be a Samaritan woman. And here she is being talked about 2,000 years later. So maybe not a bad goal after all. We all find our identity in many different things. Where we live, the languages we speak, the values that we hold, our appearance, the talents we have, our occupation, our family. There are so many things. The list goes on. Places where we find our identity. Identity is a strong force. It can hold us together but it can also keep us apart from one another. And there's no better time of the year to reflect on this than the Olympics, right? Because our identity as Canadians both holds us together and keeps us apart from one another. I experienced this in its fullness last week when I stayed up to watch the women's hockey game. Now, the gold medal game, as you may have known, it started at like quarter after 11. I wasn't going to stay up, but I talked to my father on the phone earlier in the day. He said, oh, these games are short. They only last a couple of hours. That is, of course, unless the game goes into overtime. And unless, of course, it goes beyond overtime into a shootout. And so at 2.15, when I finally went to bed, I actually found myself cheering for Canada, but having a hard time, I'm confessing here, having a hard time cheering against the American goalie. If you watch this game, here's this 20-year-old girl in net, and she was just amazing to watch. She has this grin. Like, when you stop a goal in a shootout, you do not make a facial expression. You kick the puck out of the net, and you're like, yeah, of course. Like, that's what you do. But she didn't. She gets this grin ear to ear, looks over at her bench. She's like, I stopped the goal. She's like so excited. It's hard to cheer against her. And so I found out how our identity, yes, can bring us together, cheering for our nation, but it also somehow keeps us at a distance from people whose identity is different than our own. It's tricky. 
Well, for Samaritans, a minority people group with a common ancestry to the Israelites, Jews, like Jesus, were the ones responsible for their exclusion. And for women, whose social status was severely limited in the first century, men, like Jesus, were the ones responsible for their exclusion. A lifetime of feeling excluded can lead to a hardening of the spirit to the point where you cannot even imagine being accepted for who you are. And so listen to her words again. How can you ask me for a drink? You are the very person who makes my life as hard as it is. Might we do the same thing? Somehow blame our exclusion on God, misunderstanding who he is. Well, how did Jesus respond to the woman's perceived identity barrier, the one where her ethnicity and gender should have got in the way? Verse 10 reads this way, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus brushes aside the woman's assume, what the woman assumed should have prevented their interaction. But she immediately finds another reason to end the conversation. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Where we see impossibility, God sees potential. So how would Jesus respond to this? Well, verse 13 and 14, he picks it up. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. At this point, the woman seems prepared to engage Jesus. She says, sir, give me this water, but he knows there are more barriers to be torn down, so he makes a rather unusual request. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. All of a sudden, she sees another barrier, this time a moral one, her failed relationships. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. Came across this wonderfully encouraging PowerPoint. So you've been divorced five times and can't figure out what the problem is? Honey, the common denominator in all this is you. This is probably what she heard when Jesus brought up her lack of being married and her past relationships. In fact, some commentators believe that the time of day mentioned at the beginning of the story is significant. It was noon, which would have been the hottest time of day to fetch water, the time of day that no one would have gone to the well to fetch water, which is why she went then because there would be no one else there, no one who would give her a look or not give her a look, no one who would say something discouraging or disparaging to her, or no one who just wouldn't talk to her at all. She went there to be alone. But this woman is far from alone in believing that her moral failures in life would exclude her from being accepted, not only by her townsfolk, but also by God himself. All kinds of people with a genuine thirst for God struggle to show up in church, expecting that their failures, their sin, excludes them from receiving his love. But where does someone get this idea? Where would someone get the idea that their moral failures somehow exclude them from God's love? Well, they get it from us, from the church, from followers of Jesus, who somehow give the impression that if you mess up, 
or if you've got a seedy past, then you're excluded. But how did Jesus respond to the woman's morality barrier, the one where her seedy past, and actually her seedy present too, should have gotten in the way? This is what he says. What you have just said is quite true. That's it. That's all he said about it. No judgment, no condemnation, just an acknowledgement of the facts. Now, you may be wondering, are you saying Jesus didn't care about her lifestyle? No, of course he did. But he cared about it so much that he wasn't willing to lose her on account of it. He knew he was already walking on thin ice with this woman. And as the prophet Isaiah had written of him centuries before, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The woman may have been ready to exclude herself on a moral basis, but Jesus was not. But guilt is a strong force in our life. And perhaps because of the guilt she carried, the shame that she carried with her, she slipped right back into her exclusion narrative. We'll pick it up at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This time it was a religious barrier, perhaps the ultimate form of exclusion. I don't practice my faith the way you do. So that's the end of this, right? What she didn't realize was that the picture of Jesus that Jesus had been painting of his father was something strikingly different from what anyone had seen before, including the Jews. Think about the kinds of things that Jesus said. All throughout John's Gospels and the other accounts of his life, he would say things like, well, you've heard it said this way, but I want to I tell you what it's really like. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like this. He would say, my Father in heaven is like this. This is how it's going to be. This is what it's like. He was painting a completely different picture of what people thought religion was all about, of what they thought God was all about. It wasn't just the Samaritans who had got it wrong. It was, in fact, everyone who had got it wrong. Sure, the Samaritans seemed to have missed the boat on the location of worship. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews said, no, you got to worship in Jerusalem. But Jesus glazes over that detail and casts a vision for a deeper and truer worship. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Our forms of worship, our understanding of religion is a significant barrier to people coming to faith. I can remember a few years ago, attending the funeral of my brother-in-law's father, and it was in a Catholic church. And if you've been to a Catholic uh, funeral before, it's basically like a church service with a funeral incorporated in it. And so as we will do later this morning, there was communion that was as part of the service. And as the people kind of went up to go, there were some people who weren't part of the church and they would kind of stay seated in their seat. And I got up and I walked forward to take communion. Well, after the fact, I learned that this was actually quite a, you know, a disturbing thing for some people who were there. Like, why would you, who are not Catholics, stand up to take communion here? And it's not the first time that I'd done that. I'd done it many times. And, and the part of the reason is not to be disrespectful, but, but years ago I was part of a chaplaincy at the university and the, I remember asking the Catholic priest, like, if I... If I 
came up to the communion table at your church, would you serve me? And he said, absolutely, I'd serve you. We're followers of Christ. And so for me, that was a, a reminder that, that my faith was an invitation to share in this, in this sacrament with my brothers and sisters, who I didn't know, and, and with whom I have many differences, of course. But religion creates barriers, even be- between people of the same religion, the same faith. And we need to be cautious of this. Well, there's no denying that people exclude one another, churches, groups, denominations. If we apply that experience to our expectations of God, we're at risk of missing out on something significant. That because a church has left someone out, that that means God leaves them out. We have to be careful of that. I don't want church or religion or anything else to get in the way of someone making a genuine connection with God, of worshiping Him, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. The Samaritan woman almost missed out entirely on Jesus because she was immersed in unreality. All of these walls that were never really there. She thought that her gender was a barrier. She thought that her ethnicity was a barrier. She thought that that her religion was a barrier. She thought that her moral past and her present living circumstances were a barrier. Towards the end of their conversation, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now here's the main thing I want every one of us to take out of this place this morning. Many of the barriers that we see standing between ourselves and God simply are not there. And while he invites us to draw near to him, the question is, will we? Peter Scazzaro writes that there is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. The reality for the Samaritan woman and for us here today is that there are no walls high enough to exclude us from the love of God. Now, you can't really blame the woman. We all know what it's like to be excluded. My family packed up all of our belongings into a moving truck and moved all the way from Kitchener to Waterloo. It was the end of grade, my grade four year of school, and I had, to, I had to move to a new school. Now, the reality is, there is no difference for a 10-year-old between moving from Kitchener to Waterloo and moving from Kitchener to Winnipeg or Australia. It means there's no difference at all. I had no mode of transportation. All of my friends were gone. My neighborhood was gone. My home was gone. My school was gone. Everything was gone. And I showed up at the beginning of grade five and did everything I could to hold back the tears on my first day of school because I was absolutely alone. The teacher assigned a kid in the class uh, to show me around the school during recess, but the recess bell rang and that kid ran out onto the playground and I just stood there by myself. It was terrible. And uh, fortunately, my dashing good looks uh, got me in good with some of the girls in the class. And that did not sit well, however. It was very short-lived joy um, because it did not sit uh, well with the alpha male of the class who was like, okay, wait a second. And this boy uh, in our class in grade five, his name was Kent Breen, he decided to... (laughs) Just my little subtle revenge there, right? He decided to pick on me. It was awful. Recess, lunch break. It was hell at school. I hated it. I would get picked on. He would physically like shove me to the ground. He would make fun of me. It was awful. I hated it. It was a terrible experience. We became friends years later, and I got him back, but that's another story for another day. So we all know what it's like to be excluded. But on the opposite end, we also know what it's like to exclude. 
You see, the beginning of grade six, things were different. I had a year of experience at Harold W. Wagner Public School under my belt. I was no longer the new kid. So when the new kid, a boy named Christian Pewey, showed up in the class, it was my turn to do the excluding. I mean, it was unfortunate. His last name was Pewey. He was in grade six. His family wasn't that well off, so the clothes he wore weren't quite up to the fashion. His father drove an old beater of a car, actually kind of similar to the car I drive now, ironically, but we would make fun of him. Uh, we would make fun of him something fierce. I remember one day uh, our teacher pulled me out into the, cl- into the hallway and, and said that uh, Christian's father had called the school and, and said that, that, that we had beat him up on the way home from school, which wasn't true, but uh, I think back of it as an adult and realize just the depths of, of uh, this hopelessness that he was feeling. He had to do something to get these bullies off of his back. Uh, and so he made up the story to try to get us in trouble. Let me just hit pause for a second and, uh, you know, speak to our junior youth and our senior youth who are here today and say, you know, there, there honestly aren't a lot of things that I regret in my life, like very few things that I regret, but the way that I treated people, you know, in junior high and high school, man, I wish I could turn back the clock. You know, we know what it's like to be excluded, but we also know what it's like to exclude people. And it doesn't stop in high school either. It doesn't stop. It continues when we leave people out because they're not like us or they don't quite fit in. Neuroscience studies have shown that similar areas of the brain are activated when we experience physical and social pain. It's a part of the brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. And so when you're physically, like, punched, your body sends a message to that part of the brain saying, ah, this hurts. But when you are socially punched, the same part of the brain gets a message because it hurts to be excluded. Long-lasting and repeated social exclusion might also have the potential to change a person's interpretations about how others feel and think and behave. When I was reading about this, I thought, this is what happened to the Samaritan woman. Years of exclusion, years of social pain, it changed the way she thought about the people around her. There's no way this guy is going to love me. There's no way this person is going to accept me. It changes how they feel, how they think, and how they behave. Tanisi Coates writes about his experience as an African-American. He talks about the curtains drawing down between the world and me. His experience growing up in America as a black man saying, like, it's just like this curtain is coming down, separating me from the rest of the people around me. And so just as we're called to reject the imaginary barriers between ourselves and God, to approach him with confidence, we are also called to pull up the curtains that threaten to exclude one another. If our starting point is to accept other people as being created in the image of God, then that becomes their primary identity and the basis of how we treat them. Miroslav Volf notes that without this orientation, we're pretty much determined to pit ourselves against the other in order to set boundaries that don't need to exist. But just as Jesus announced the inbreaking kingdom of God, wiping out barriers along the way to the cross, God needs people who are committed to expanding boundaries and reflecting his love to the world around us. I love this line from Brian McLaren. He said, when people draw a small circle that excludes me or those I love, I try to draw a bigger circle that includes them. That's a kingdom-minded approach. So what happens after Jesus has this conversation with the woman? Well, I want to read what goes on a little beyond what Teresa read for us earlier. Start at verse 28. 
Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and to the people. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, interesting side note here. As far as I read, Jesus never did get the drink that he was after. The woman sets her jar down, runs back into town. Jesus is like, I said I was thirsty. Come on. But then maybe he was after something more significant after all. Maybe it wasn't a glass of water that he sat down at that well for. A few verses later, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. In an unexpected place, Jesus found someone with a long list of reasons she didn't belong. So he offered her what she could not find anywhere else himself. But he began by asking the woman at the well to give him a drink, a reminder that in giving ourselves, we participate in the great exchange, our lives for him, his life for us. I love how the message translates Romans 8.3. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. That's beautiful. And as Baxter Kruger writes, the gospel is not an invitation. The gospel is a declaration of the truth. This is something that has happened. It happened a long time ago, and it continues to happen every time we tell this story. It is a truth that is both already and not yet. We are welcomed, and yet we still experience exclusion. It is both present and still to come. We feel the love of God, but we still feel a distant, and we have to wait for the fullness of that. I want to close with this thought, and then I'm going to pass the mic over to Rebecca, who's going to lead us in communion this morning. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf warns against thinking that complete reconciliation is possible on this side of Christ's final work in the last day. He says, we need to do all the work we can to reconcile ourselves to people, to break down these walls and these barriers, to to seek out the people who are excluded. We need to do all that we can. But the truth is, it's not going to happen on this side of the grave. Like, there's something something final about what God will do in world history that will bring about the complete tearing down of the walls and barriers that prevent us from communing with God. But in the meantime... The crucial question, he says, is not how to accomplish the final reconciliation. We can't do that. But what resources do we need to live in peace in the absence of the final reconciliation? Thank you, Brandon. Good morning. I really love this question that Brandon read that Volf asks us. What resources do we need to live in peace in the absence of reconciliation. Because living in the world is far from perfect. We can lose at the women's gold medal hockey game. That was so painful, but we played very well. Living in the world can be really uncomfortable. Our love for others is far from perfect. Our prayers to God 
are far from perfect. Even our songs of worship are imperfect, and the road is long. But communion is an attempt, albeit feeble, at renewing our love for God and offering ourselves and our hearts as a gift. And I believe that God hears our hearts and responds with love to our attempts. This tangible act of walking down the aisle to taste the yeast of the bread and the sweetness of the wine, or in this case, juice, is an act of love, of our love for Christ. It's offering our imperfect selves to God, for better or for worse, and reconciling ourselves to receive his perfect love for us. Communion is a reminder that Christ came here, walked on earth alongside us, talked with us, ate bread with us, and then offered himself in love to the world through his body. Have you ever had a conversation that changed your life, that fully offered your outlook and your life course? If so, maybe you can relate to how the Samaritan woman was feeling and what her experience was like in that moment of suddenly realize that Christ was offering his love even to her. It was a breakthrough moment, a turning point of how she saw herself. She was loved by Christ, and her whole story was changed. Evidently, the story of other Samaritans in that community as well. So I want us to ask ourselves today, what's our cultural equivalent of the Samaritan's women's barriers? What stands in our way to fully receive Christ's love? What barriers are part of your story? Do you have self-doubts in your faith? That's okay. Acknowledge them and be honest. Did you have faith once and now you're wavering? That's okay too. Are you confident and reassured in your faith? Or maybe you're skeptical. Are you anxious or are you at ease? Is your faith growing or a little stuck? Or maybe it's non-existent. There is no faith to speak of at all. Were you taught to ask lots of questions about your faith or maybe not to question anything at all you were told? God doesn't mind our questions. We each have very different obstacles to our seeking Christ. We each live different stories. Our barriers to seeking God are honest and are real. But we can acknowledge them, accept them, and move past them instead of getting stuck. So my challenge for you today is to act as though your own personal barriers to seeking God are as important to you as they are to Christ, because he doesn't mind. Henry Nguyen, in his book, Life of the Beloved, writes, All I want to say to you is that you are the beloved, and all I hope is that you can hear these words spoken to you with all the tenderness and the force that love can hold. My only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. We have a liturgy. Um, we have a slide for that. And I think we'll stand to read this together because from the liturgy, which is a participatory reading, we'll move forth to the communion. So I'm the reader in this case, and you're all. God calls us to a feast.
Compassion, love, and grace are poured out like fine wine. The table is set, so come, let us worship God together. So at this time, I'd like to invite those serving communion to come forward and prepare. And when we share these elements together, the bread and the wine, we do so to remember and reflect on what Jesus has done for us. The table is open to all who would join together in remembrance this morning. If you do not feel comfortable participating, you're perfectly welcome to use this time for reflection in your own way. There's a ceremony of grace, so there's no pressure to take part at all. We'll start from the front and move to the back. So if you choose to just remain in your seat, kindly just um, pop aside into the aisle to let people come through and we'll do a big circle system and take your seats after you receive your elements and then we'll pray together at the end while we share. All who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the fountain, dip your heart in the stream of life, let the pain and the sorrow be washed away. In the waves of his mercy, as deep cries out to deep, we sing, Come, Lord Jesus, come. come. Your heart in the stream of life, let the pain and the sorrow be washed away in the waves of His mercy, as deep cries out to deep, we sing, come Lord. 
I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life could really change at all. All this earth, could all that is lost ever be found? Could a garden come up from this ground at all? You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things. Out of us, all around, hope is springing up from this old ground. Out of life, faith is being found. Things you make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. I'm going to read a communion from the Book of Common Prayer. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have a little more. You who have been here often, you who have tried to follow Jesus, and you who haven't. Come, it is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Loving God, through your goodness, we have this bread and wine to offer, which have come forth from the earth and human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing, so that we may know your touch and presence in all things. We celebrate the life that Jesus has shared among his community through the centuries and shares with us now, made one in Christ and one with each other. We offer these gifts and with them ourselves as a single living act of praise. Amen. Please eat and drink. Dear God, thank you for this time together, and just thank you for um, allowing us to uh, pay some attention to these roadblocks that are in front of our, our hearts and our eyes and our lives, and help us to just, with your strength and grace, just to kick those down. Um, I 
be with us all as, um, as we go out from today in your name. Amen. So you're dismissed. I believe there's a final song. And when we're done, we can linger in here. Please remember not to go into the gym because they're having a meeting. But you can go into the parlor for a little bit. Right? All right. Thank you so much. Please stand. Future hangs on this. You make precious nets from dust. Please don't stop creating me. Your blood offers a chance to rewind to innocence. Reborn, perfect as a child. Your cross, it changes everything. There, my world begins again with you. Oh, your cross, it's where my hope restarts. Second chance is heaven. When sin and ugliness collide with redemption's kiss, beauty 